I we've pretty much just like roundabout talked about all the things that I kind of want to talk about. So, do you guys have anything in particular before we start where you want me to kind of like guide the direction that way, or I kind of want to start by posing us like a little bit of a wrap up talk while adding to some of this like demystifying the American myth and what we're, we're kind of a thing. One of the things that I don't know if this would be a, a centralizing thought for everybody else, but I mean, the mm-hmm. one experience that's kind of close to home for all of us that we've experienced is just Shamawa, right? I mean, right. We, I know. Oh, interesting. Hillary put me onto that. These, uh, all of the suicides and the violence and stuff that have happened at Indian boarding schools, especially Shamawa. What you're saying is like a, a fantastic point. And I think it took hearing it, hearing you kind of restate it for me to be like, holy shit. Well, yeah, <laughs> I, I mentioned it incorrectly because I used the term us and us. And yeah. right now it means four white guys. I, but right. Yeah. I, I think that's something that we can talk about in this next segment, too, though. It's like because basically these Scotch Irish people were poor people who were being manipulated to do the bidding of colonial. So, like, what what ways are we being manipulated? You know, right. probably a lot by ExxonMobil. And like <laughs> there's there's certainly ways that we could get at. Yeah. So I, I think it's interesting to talk. But I just didn't want us to. I just didn't want to talk about how we were like the victim. No, and you're yeah, right. Not, and you I, know, like, man, actually, and it's happening to us. And I'm like, well, not in the same right. way. And I actually yeah, appreciate, but, I actually really appreciate you chiming in with that because when, as soon as you said something, I was like, oh shit, the way I'm presenting my, what I actually mean is not correct. And it's actually does more well, damage and, to my point than the way I was presenting it. So no, thank you. And always keep yeah. doing that. No. And I think that's part of this whole thing though. Like me and Rhett were talking about this yesterday. Calling each other out is good because that's this whole point of this podcast. It's like mm-hmm. a learning experience for all of us. So if we say something that's completely off base, maybe we think that it's not, but everyone else does or whatever. You know what I mean? So and I, I, think I, yeah. it's, I think it's good to do that. Yeah, And I think uh, white people in particular have a problem and it's like, yeah, we're an ally but don't listen to the way she's saying it, you know, because she, <laughs> it's like, it's like, you just, and in truth, there's, yeah. and in truth, the like, hearts and minds are in the right place, but the way that we present the information is yeah. bullshit. And it's because yeah. we're privileged little shits who've been brainwashed by imperialism and by white supremacy. <laughs> well, I, and sorry, just say I want one more cutting edge of, progressive thought there's these two new there's a new phrase so there's like calling somebody out and then there's calling somebody in which is hilarious and i didn't know what it was but it's basically what happened here where like oh thanks danny when you call somebody in it's it ends with like a thank you versus when you call somebody out they're going to be really defensive so i think this what you're saying is totally right like this space can be a space where we're like hey you know maybe think about this and and then the response from the other podcaster would be like thanks man like i appreciate that <laughs> you know and that man. and that way we're like holding each other accountable without <laughs> what Rhett's talking about <laughs> like, I, I can't believe you said this the response can be can also be like, eh, eh, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. Let's let's get it. Okay. I got to wrap wrap this conversation up and get us going. So whenever you're ready to record it. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Awesome Book Club. We uh, just got off of a little bit of a break. We had some great filler conversation that we may want to talk about here as well. Um, but we want to thank you for you guys for joining us. We have more conversation about an indigenous people's history of the United States by Roxanne Dun- Dunbar Ortiz. Um, man, so we kind of had a, a very windy conversation the first episode, um, which I liked. I liked just kind of going in the direction that we all felt. Um, and I want to kind of just keep this episode focus on the wrap up. What are our biggest takeaways from reading this book? How has it changed our opinions on things? How has it informed us on certain things? And what can we do currently to make a change for the better? Because obviously, there are many, many issues that are still going on to this day um, that we have, like, now is the time that we can make a difference. So I just want to keep that focus. And uh, wherever we take the conversation is good. So, Kurt, go ahead. Take us away. Yeah, I just want to congratulate or commend Roxanne Dembartis. I think of any 
book that I've read that's related to this topic, she brought it to the present. And something I thought of a ton was it matters because we're still fighting these wars. We're in countries and bombing their civilians and droning their people and saying like, oh, it's all for the good of democracy or civilization or blah, blah, blah. And then in our own culture, we're still gun nuts who, like you know, we talked about in the first episode, are hoarding weapons to fight off the bad people, which I think comes directly from this. So, yeah, I, I think I now have a way clearer picture of, of what's happening now in our society and in our military after reading this. Yeah. Um, so the last chapter, the conclusion, the future of the United States has quite a bit about American militarism and some of the like subtopics in the uh, the last chapter include, quote unquote, engine country, which is terrible, um, ramped up militarization. North America is a crime scene and body parts. And I think that that's something that we can focus on today. And, and I don't mean to say anything that discounts like American troops, because that's a whole different subject, right? But I think we need to really keep in mind that the United States was founded on violence, on prejudice, on you know, this pride in arms, right? Like, like, why is this gun debate that we're having still the exact same? It, it hasn't changed at all. And I think it's because the American myth has been pet- perpetuated for so long. And I don't want to use the word brainwash, but we're just like taught to believe that America like part of being an American is having pride for your military and not questioning what's done in the military. And we're going to basically continue to see America, whether it's in the forefront of news and media, use its military um, in these negative, basically continuation of colonialist ways. So what can we do about that? Go ahead, Danny. And just to go off of what you're saying, a uh, passage in the chapter, the concluding chapter, somebody who gets excited because a jet bomber flies over the football stadium to open the football season and is glad that he or she is in the stadium to see it is being militarized. And I think that kind of feeds into what Kurt was saying, where what can we do? Why is this important now? It's important now because it's still going on and seeing a jet, you know, getting excited because that jet flies over the stadium is a good example of how it continues. In that same breath, though, I think we should be able to say that letting go of that is going to be challenging for people. And I think that's also something that we're going to have to look at as we desire to make that change is how do we how do we get people to recognize that that's important? You know, one time, one time I had told somebody that well just recently actually while reading this book i was talking to a coworker and i said yeah well i i think this gun reverence comes from the fact that america was forged at the end of a gun we fought a revolutionary war and then we carved out all of these territories by killing and pillaging and they said well and i think they used the example of germany and i said well at least you know they might have faltered along the way and they're having their their sort of troubles now as are a lot of countries in the european union are just like America is currently. But Germany was not forged at the end of a gun. They were they were forged at the end of a pen, a signing of a treaty between five separate smaller nations into one. Th- so they're not even comparable. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's like, well, they try to use World War One and World War Two as an example of how, you know, European politics or whatever uh, failed them. But uh, I think those are... Well, obviously, they're huge issues in American... Er, fuck me. Not American history. Jesus Christ. Somebody rescue me. Go ahead, Kurt. Yeah, just... I want to thread that this would be super hard to change. And something popped into my head, which was just... If you ask the average person, Hey, should America have the biggest military in the world? 
or should, or should, you know, should, or is the top 10 okay? I think 95% of Americans would be like, what the hell? We want to be number one and we want to be number one by 10x. And, and that it's been so ingrained that it, it would be a laughable political opinion to run on like, yeah, let's shrink our military. We don't need to, we don't need to be, you know, people say things like we don't need to be the world police. But if you were to dig in and say, should we still spend more than any other nation? Every presidential candidate in the world would say 100% yes. But I mean, wouldn't you, would you say Hillary Clinton was considered more of an isolationist? No. Because I mean, that's, that, I mean, well, and that's, that's more to prove your point that if you're saying let's lessen the impact of our military and our involvement abroad, that doesn't work out well for you. I mean, even look at Obama for like, you know, a man who survived eight years in office without a big scandal. And the thing that people don't like to admit when they're big fans of Obama is that he actually ramped up drone activity from the GW era. And it's okay for you to have approved of Obama as president and still say that you disapprove of his actions overseas. That's okay. Hillary Clinton, much the same way. And, and you say, your question was, uh, was she more of an isolationist? I mean, that the answer is yes. But, well, and, that, <laughs> but and just to, is, no. I'm trying to kind of prove the point that Kurt had that if you were to go in and say that we want to reduce our impact abroad, it's just, it's not going to go well for you. Yeah, I think essentially any one of the two parties, if Hillary would have won, if Trump won and did, they're going to uphold the status quo in, in military because they don't want to see the United States falter in that way either, right? They want us to keep our stranglehold and continue to be the number one power in the world, whatever, which I guess is probably debatable at this point. But God, so this... This book, when it talks about us, the, the U.S. kind of like making so many military bases overseas, like there are multiple countries that we have hundreds of military bases in. And there was one example, I don't remember which island it was, in the 70s uh, during Vietnam, we basically uprooted a whole island and made it a military base. Did you know the the name right? I thought I was going n- no. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, we basically uproot this whole island and their population. It's like 100,000 or 70,000 or something people and we just like say sorry, like this this is us. This is ours. Well, look like, at how we, we treated Look at how we treated Hawaii after Pearl Harbor. Yeah. I mean, martial law for crying out. You couldn't have a freaking light on in your house after a certain time. Yeah. Well, it just is it's it's a continuation of exactly what we did to the Native Americans. Like it brings me back like so the the reason this example really hit home with me was they moved all of the people out, which is horrible by itself, but then they took all of their animals and exterminated them. Okay, yeah. So they exterminated all of their animals, which is just ridiculous. Um it kind of just shows like we strong arm these less fortunate people and do whatever we want with them without their consent. And it goes back to, and I'm going to butcher this because I, I have a hard time keeping track or keeping all the tribes straight, but whichever tribe it was in the plains where we like basically help, help or, you know, they took over some of the European practices and, and became more dependent on Buffalo for, you know, their skins and the meat and everything. The Lakota. And, was it the Lakota? Yeah. Um, so basically, they became very dependent on this one resource. And what happened? The U.S. goes in and basically ex- almost exterminates the buffalo, which just com- cl- completely collapses at this point the Laco- Lakota's way of life because now they're kind of, they almost have this capitalism based society. And, and this this happened over and over, where the United States drop onto this capitalistic si- system, and then once they do, <laughs> we use that against them. And we're doing this exact same thing overseas when we go into Iraq or Afghanistan, and we try to train their police force. We overthrow you know different 
forms of government. It's just, you know, in the name of democracy, in the name of capitalism. I'm just thinking about um, we're, we're kind of down this path of militarism and thinking about how we can reduce this or how we can change our society. And I think that like step zero or, you know, the first step, which uh, Roxanne Dumbartes mentions is like, we have to own up to our past and we have to recognize what happened. And it, it seems like within read this book and we're like, yep, yes, this happened and we need to own up to it. And this needs to be an important part. So I guess a question I would have for us before we dive more into the military is how how do we spread that step one? How do we have more people read this book, understand the lessons from it, and then at least have a mind that has accepted our history and the real version and not what we were taught in schools or not what our culture and those myths try to teach us? Good. I think one of the things that I've stayed away from again, just because in the past I've been kind of apathetic towards it, is if there's a discussion about Redskins, the Indians, um, the Braves, whatever it may be, the Seminoles, I stay away from it. It just doesn't mean a lot to me. And it's especially with the Reds, or sorry, especially with the Redskins now, that means a lot to me. And I think that's something where that's a small step where you can you can take the time to explain, engage somebody on Facebook, and you know maybe... I'm never a big fan of if I really want to communicate a point to somebody directly because I want them to understand it, I'm not going to respond to their threat as much as I might reach out to them in a direct message and say, hey, why don't you take a look at this? I think those are really small things that we can do to expose people to why these things are as bad as they are. <laughs> I know. And I'm the actually I'm the worst at probably engaging people on Facebook in a positive way. I mean, all of my Facebook friends probably saw my latest post. It was just like fuck you if you disagree <laughs> which has been all of my uh, pseudo political <laughs> posts lately but but this podcast is going to end up being a roadmap to how Rhett Weisenfels became an activist <laughs> because with Hiroshima you heard me say like what is stopping us from reaching out to our, our our city governments and saying why aren't we a part of cities or mayors for peace whatever the hell group it's called cities or mayors I can't remember which had the same conversation in Hiroshima, but uh, but what is stopping American cities from being a part of that group? If it's the dues, if it's the the yearly annual dues, I'll pay them. I'll fill out the paperwork, send it all to me. I'll take care of it. If it means that America has just as many cities on that list as every other country. And same thing with this. The, by the time I was done with this book, I was wondering, what is stopping me? The first, my first week living in my house in Silverton, four women came up to my door with brochures. And they said, we're running for the school board. Silverton School Board has no women on the board. And they have not a single person who has a degree. Us four women standing right here, we're all running. We all have degrees. <laughs> elect us. And we elected some of them. I don't recall how many, unfortunately, because I suck. But what is stopping us from reaching out to these school boards and saying, hey, we don't have to. Nobody has to read this book, but maybe this should be adopted as the as the standard education for Silvertonians. America committed atrocities. Let's not forget, you know, in in uh, Between the World and Me, uh, Mr. Coates says that slavery did not end on accident. It was the will of hardworking people that made slavery end. Now, if we want these things, if we're talking about first steps to take, they don't. it doesn't happen on accident. I don't know. I th I'm honestly, after today, I'm thinking of drafting formal letters to those four uh, school board, um, school boardies, school board people, whatever the correct term is, and saying, like, what can we do to look at this interpretation of historical fact and introduce that? Because it starts with kids. Think about your time in elementary school and what you learned about the colonization of America. And 
guaranteed it's painted in a positive light. About the only negative thing I heard was about how white people nearly wiped out the buffalo. Well, I just want to say that was that was a powerful, really powerful statement. And one of the best things about Awesome Book Club and this podcast is we didn't know where we were going when we started. We just knew we wanted to read interesting books from diverse perspectives. And two, I have two points to make. One is a lot of these things are intertwined. And I think it was meant to be in some way that we read Between the World and Me and in this book back to back. And that's like the concept of intersectionality, that the struggle of the African-Americans in the United States is very related to the struggle of Native Americans and indigenous people. So I think that these books on a whole are like creating, you know, a narrative that, that then we need to address. And I think that's really interesting. And my second point would be maybe we have to build in a different part to this podcast. You know, maybe we read a book every two months and like the first month is read the book is do some shit about what you learned from reading the book. I don't know. It definitely, it does make me wonder like, oh, this is so amazing. I have so many strong clouds and it's March and I got to start reading our next one. <laughs> you know, like part of me is thinking, wow, I can't move on. Like, I just want to read this book for a year. or I just want to focus on uh, Between the World and Me for a year. So I'm just throwing that out there as like, oh man, maybe maybe that we're missing this component and, and we need to find a way to, to put that in. I agree. And and that's sort of I've been talking to Taylor about this for the last couple of days, but like that's sort of my struggle with choosing a book. For, I mean, <laughs> I know we're a whole month away and we still have to go through Danny's choice and all this sort of stuff. But that's my struggle with choosing a book is like, do I choose a long book, which we can just dedicate a whole month to reading? Or do I choose a short book? And I say, read this short book as fast as you can and then like do something with the extra time. One so one thing that okay, Rhett and I have another podcast called Game Devs Quest, which is about us making video games and like learning how to make video games. And one thing that we often do on that podcast is challenge each other at the end of an episode. So one thing we could try is trying to come up with challenges, maybe as a group, um, oh, or that. individual challenges, or something like that. Because you're right, Kurt, we. We read these amazing books and then we process them, and that's really all we do. But I, I'm getting to that point where it is like. So I was talking to Alia um, before this this book. Alia is my wife. Um, I, I've been doing this thing uh, called One Game a Month, where you make a video game one one video game a month, and this month's theme is permanence. And I was like, well, man, permanence, like. I I can see this relating to what we just read because we've had these permanent lasting effects on Native Americans. And I'm with the games that I'm making, I kind of want it to become something where I make games to spread social awareness around something. Um and I so I I I have this kind of feeling within myself that I want to make this I want to be able to make change from doing this. And I don't know if video games is the right way to do that because video games have their own connotation. And it's like me making something up from my white man perspective. So I don't know how I would make a game. But just like that desire to do something with that, I think is is a crucial part of what's come out of just the several months we've been doing this. Go ahead, Danny. And beyond that, I mean, before... Kurt brought this up to me. There was actually a time where uh, I had thought about, you know, I'd seen Rhett doing some podcasting. I'd listened to a lot of podcasts and I always have appreciated the perspective of life that I've gained from this group of friends. And I think being a part of this is that idea is what has made being a part of this so special to me, but it's also a thought that I've had. And I think Kurt really hit the nail on the head or as Marie would say, really hit the nail head on the nose um, <laughs> <laughs> what a teacher thing to say. <laughs> um, uh, that's a that's a thought that I've had too. A lot of times, Maria will come home and she'll talk to me about a problem that's happened at work, and immediately what I dive into, which is for any guys listening to this podcast or getting married, if your wife comes comes home and complains about a hard day, don't 
try and give her ideas how to fix it. She does not want that. <laughs> I could have told you that one. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people did tell me that one. I had to figure that one out for myself. You just got to go straight for the foot times. rub. You know what I'm talking about? Just <laughs> Pizza but and foot rubs. It's something that I've related to this podcast a little bit in that we read these ideas, these these um, perspectives of people where there's a problem. And my first thought is, how do we fix it? You know, And so I've also I've, I've had to balance the idea of thinking about, well, that's not what I need to be thinking about. But then after that, I still want to do something about about it. And not only do we have the power to explore these new ideas, I think we have the ability to do something about it. And I would definitely voice my support in kind of transitioning towards something like that. I, this is great. I, this is one of my favorite parts of any of our episodes because we're, we're diving into this, like what's 2.0 look like, you know, now that we have the information and I, a lot of thoughts are going around and around in my head, but it could look like so many things. You know, we talked about Shamal, which is our local Indian like boarding school, high school that we played with in sports in high school. And I, and that's in that's local for you three, not not for me, but like there could be things there. She in the book mentions the Black Hills a lot as this like spiritual place that needs to be given back and has no business being in like federal control or private control. And then, you know, I, I think about things like can be like we could petition to have yes. the name change. And, yes. And yes, yeah, so, like there are so many ways that, that we could get involved, both at the local, like next door, the town next door level and at like this national. OK, what where's the Black Hills campaign at? Can we give it money? Can we like post about it on Facebook? And I also think that just to your challenge question, Taylor, you know, maybe a simple challenge is we all make sure someone else in our life reads this book and that it, we're just spreading the message. And we try to say like, hey, this is a powerful book and we want you to once you read it, get somebody else. And we really want to like spread spread this around. I mean, that's I think that also brings us back to the original question, which is like, oh, wow, so many things we could do. Wow. Well, this is a this, another problem. <laughs> like, which yeah. one do we pick? How, how much time will it take? You know, what's it going to be like to move forward? But, but asking these questions, it, I feel like is a new, a new step and a really important one. Awesome. Yeah. I guess we just well, have to go to the Black Hills and personally destroy Mount Rushmore. <laughs> That's like one of the most ironic things about this book. And, and I think one of the things that really struck me was the idea of Mount Rushmore. And even if you go back and have you guys seen the videos for Adam Ruins Everything? Have you guys heard about that? Yeah, I've heard of it. If you haven't, Kurt, look it up. Um, he kind of breaks down that Mount Rushmore was just a tourist attraction. You know, it wasn't some like great homage to these presidents or these people that made impact in the United States. It was just a tourist attraction. And it's knowing that in conjunction with with just what the occupation of that land represents, it, it's it's very embarrassing. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that she talks about that the Americans did just as like one more thing to sh to like cruel to be cruel and kind of show the Native Americans that they had been conquered, like just to kind of piss in their water. And that was one of them that like Mount Rushmore is crazy. The, at the very end of the book, she talks about um native american remains and like what happens with those and what's supposed to happen is basically if remains are found on a reservation or whatever on native lands that those remains are given back to the tribe but that seems to never happen and like i don't remember the exact details but there was a, a really old body found in washington state and his remains are still in custody of like some scientists and they're like examining the body and which I mean, like there, there is something to say about like using science to learn about our past, but it seemed like it was just more nefarious or like, um, you know, like they, they had when they were talking about this, they were talking about how the first findings that came out of that was that this person had more European characteristics than Native American characteristics. So it like brought rise to these white supremacist groups like 
supporting the scientists and saying like, see, Europeans and white people were the real Native Americans. It's just like, dude. The first time that white supremacists ever agreed with science. Right? (laughs) And so it's just wild. It's like, well, the other thing she said was basically we take these remains and then we put them up in the Smithsonian or a museum. And then it's like just showcasing what America conquered. You know, it's like, why, why it's like your pet going to the bathroom on the, you know, your dog pees on the, on the carpet and then you rub his nose in it. Like we're doing that still. Why are we like this? I don't get it. We're horrible. Manifest (laughs) destiny. It's our destiny to be like this, son. Yeah, and that's why, like, I don't want to 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 harp on <laughs> on make America great again, but God, no harp like, on it. it because America's you, foundation. Yeah, is I, built. I'd say harp, harp away on that. That's a ridiculous. <laughs> We're built it, on pillage yeah. and rape. Well, yeah, exactly. You, <laughs> we like. What do you think about like, or what do these people think about when they say make America great again? Like make it a more segregated society, make it make it a society where America did whatever we wanted to people indiscriminately, just like, well, we want that, so we're gonna take it for you and then we're gonna shit on your fucking bush or whatever. I don't know. Like what it like what it what do you wanna go back to? Killing innocent cholera, typhoid fever. Go ahead, Kurt. Tuberculosis. Well and yeah, this is like I've definitely heard what you're saying a lot. People, a lot of people feel this way around like, what, why do we want to go back, you know, make America great again? And I'm trying to add this book's interpretation into that and thinking like, if you read this book, you would understand that America never great. And maybe that is the, the, the dagger in the heart of these people that want to make America great again. Like we were never great. We were murdering and and conquering and like genocide you know committing genocide against people to create our nation and then we were using slaves to create our nation and then when we stopped doing that we were using jim crow laws and we were we were still murdering these and then when we stopped doing that women couldn't vote and then you know like when yeah i i think that might be like the poison arrow in that argument is not just when do you want to go back to but were we ever great yeah that's a really good point. And one thing that it, that just it reminded me of was thinking back to okay, so like people would think of the Civil War as actually being a positive thing, right? Because it ended up result of it was that we freed slaves. But then in this book she talks about how then the US didn't really know what to do with all these freed slaves and they didn't want them to basically cause trouble. They didn't really want them in their society. So what they did was they made it very easy for them and desirable for them to join the military because it gave them a pension, it gave them food, it gave them a place to stay. And guess what? They sent them West. And what happens out West? You kill Native Americans. So like this whole thought was, hey, perfect. We want we want to make it farther West. We don't want slaves around or like black Americans around. We don't want Native Americans around. Make them kill each other. Easy. Kill two birds with one stone. But look at what's happening today. The Middle East is causing us problems. We don't want militant Islam. And then look at our the state of well, a lot a lot of poor people in general, but that that poor population has a lot of black people in it too it's they make it enticing for them to join the military and look what we do we ship them overseas easy take take the undesirables and pit them against each other like that's the kind of america that these i feel like that the make america great again slogan likes so I'm curious, uh, what was supposed to be the focus of this <laughs> half of the <laughs> This half well, of the... Cause there was but some... I, I, I think your, your comments about, about Make America Great Again are relatively germane to the conversation that we're having about, I mean, would you say that at the, would, would these, you know, for people who are a fan of Make America Great Again, would they say that America was great at the height of 
the Western colonization of the United States as we, you know, explored and took over the Louisiana Purchase? Was that when we were great? Um, because I think we need to take a hard look at that. So I think it is it is relatively germane to the discussion we're having about what we have learned from this book, because we have to know that what that means when we say make America great again. What are we trying to go back to? And that's important to understand. You know, how, how, have, how has the United States gotten to sort of where we are today in terms of this sort of progressive-minded movement, this inclusive m- movement, where we want to do away with the isms? Well, I think she talks about in the book that the civil rights movement really brought a lot of this to the forefront. And Native Americans, especially Native American women, were very vocal in this period. And that was that was like something that like gave me a little bit of hope was not only like Native Americans, but Native American women were like really leading this charge to kind of like get well to kind of have the U.S. admit some of the wrongdoings that they did, but also like follow the treaties that they passed stop ignoring this and, and start giving land back to the Native Americans. But I think that whole movement, people started realizing that people, out, like white people started realizing that these other experiences in in the U.S. are real, right? Like segregation made it so much easier to just ignore it. I live in a all white community and I have a nice house and so does my neighbor and he, his yard is green and blah, blah, blah. Life's good. Yeah. That's the same thing I talked about a lot in the podcast for between the world and me, this idea of just our complacency and, and, uh, you know, keeping up with the status quo and not shattering your own fan or your own illusion of the, this life that you sort of cultivated for yourself, you know? Yeah. And I think, Oh, go ahead, Danny. I think that's a really important comment to make, though, when we talk about why don't we hear about this in history class? Why wasn't this taught to us? Why doesn't anybody why are people probably entirely unaware that there there might be a, an issue here with having a town named Canby? It's because that idea that that idea of kind of being in a blissful state, it's really hard to let go of. And I think that's one of the things as we process this, this information and it becomes really clear to us that these atrocities, these injustices have occurred. It's really easy for us to see that. And it'd be very easy for us if we we're in the positions to make those changes to make them. But it's not going to be easy for the people who don't understand that, who don't want to understand that. And I think that's that's a step between really making a change between where we are and really making a change that's going to be the most difficult is is how do we get to the point where those people have that awareness. Yeah, I think uh, it's it's pretty well. So like people who who do view that, you know, they have pride in our country. They have pride in our military. They do think that we're the greatest country to ever exist. If you think that you don't want to be told that you're wrong. So that kind of by default allows you to just dismiss everything else. Like even now it's like, oh, you know, that was a long time ago. Uh, you know, it, it was terrible that it happened, but you know, look at America now, we're doing really good things in the world. It it doesn't work though. And speaking of like things we, we, uh, want to do going forward after reading this book, I have no pride in our country. Like I don't want to salute to the flag. I don't want to sing the national anthem. How many of these songs that we have, like make mention of the atrocities that we we've done to the native Americans. I think my, my only kind of disagreement with that would be we have this ideology that set, you know, that believes in equality and justice for all and for everybody having the um, freedom to, to pursue life liberty and the freedom to pursue freedom (laughs) life liberty and the pursuit of happiness and even though that we have 
failed to accomplish that in every endeavor for the most part that we've ever sought out. I still believe that in myself and especially looking at these three guys that I'm looking at right now, there's a capability to get there. And I think that's my difference. Um, I believe in what we can do going forward. Thanks, Danny. Yeah, I, and I'm I'm maybe in the middle, but definitely on sympathetic to what you're saying, Danny. And it makes me think, you know, we we all grew up in the same small town. I grew up very Catholic, and when I started to notice things in the church that I I didn't like or didn't agree with, I came to this fork in the road where the question was: Should I stay around and try and make changes from within? Or should I just, you know, leave because it's like, I can't, I just can't, I can't support this, you know, and, and it's a little different than a religious, in a religious context, because it's a little more normal to like leave and, and change faiths and, and, you know, go on a journey. I think it's a, a really salient question, though, around America. Like, once you say, I don't support this country anymore, it's really hard to be taken seriously by people that you're trying to fix it, you know, like it really alienates a lot of individuals. And like, you look at people that burned flags in the Vietnam area, like they were hated by so many, even though they were maybe making, you know, their, a point that was like needed to be made at the time. So I guess that's just my question is, could, like, can we be in inside America and like, you know, wrap ourselves in the flag, but still want it to be totally different. And that that's even a movement, even the question that's being asked in the progressive movement right now, that like certain liberal groups want to march with the flag all the time. And certain people in those groups say like, we will take it back and we'll make it mean something different. And other activists say it, it's lost. Like we just have to not use. And so it, it's kind of a, a debate, but, but I'm, you know, I'm not ready to give up. But uh, there's a lot more to be changed than I ever. And it like the problem runs deeper, like it runs to the core. Now, you guys make good points. Um, and I'm, I'm one of those people who is quick to like feel that all hope is lost. And I like I wouldn't go as far as like burning the flag or anything like that. Like I'm not going to go that way. But like from the last episode, the people who kneel for the national anthem. That's totally okay, right? You're making a statement, so we can add that kind of support for them as well because they're trying to say th things about their condition. I don't know. Um, well, just to kind of go off that, one of the analogies that I thought of uh, as I was processing this book and kind of a conversation about this exact ideal is my occupation is I'm a golf course superintendent. It means I'm in charge of the golf course right and so this last fall i put a lot of time and energy into getting the uh, board of directors to invest in upgrading the irrigation system and they denied me and i have a really good perspective and i know we need this and i spent a lot of time thinking about when i see something that i know is needed and the people that i proposed to said no was it their fault for not being open to it or was it my fault for not selling it enough or not selling it in the right way? And I think that's the challenge to myself when I think about ideas like this is if people are resistant to it, are they not open to it or have I not done everything that I can to make them open? Yeah, that's a good point. And I think that kind of just brings back the, there's a, a few ways to, move this conversation forward and to take action. And, and one of them is to spread it. And, you know, our Twitter presence is small, but growing, <laughs> but, but it, in our lives, I can think about a lot, a lot of people I know who would love to read this book, but who have never, probably never heard of it or, you know, so I think it's a great title, but, but aren't that into it. So yeah, just spreading that conversation and then agree with what you're saying, Danny, around like just getting people in that conversation, increasing that pool. So I have a question for you guys, um, because like for me, I can see myself buying this book and giving it to 
very patriotic friends and family. And my hesitation is that, well, one, they maybe they don't even read it, but two, how do you deal with if somebody reads it and then they just say, bah, you know, this is like, kind of like, this is blasphemy. This is just a bunch of BS. Because that's one of my biggest worries. And maybe, maybe it's not something I should even think about, but you know, when you try to like get somebody a gift or something or, you, you know, I'm always a little bit hesitant to try to like push my agenda on, on them, even though I know it, it would be good for them. Well, I would say that a couple of responses to that. First, this book particularly is dense and difficult to read. I, I think we all had text about that a little bit. Very academic and packed with detail. And, and it's, it's not, it might be hard for somebody who doesn't read a ton or isn't used to this kind of literature to, to like really soak it in and get into it. So I think that would be a challenge, first of all. Second of all, you know, there is, in the progressive movement, there's kind of this debate of, should you reach out to dyed-in-the-wool Trump supporters who want to kick out anyone who's illegal, or uh, sorry, undocumented, or do you want to talk to your fellow progressives and say, like, get active with me? And that's very much the conversations we're having now, is none of us were really that active in this conversation and we're just trying to but we were open to it and we're trying to switch that from like okay you're open to it and now let's actually do something so indivisible where i work i think it's okay to mention that we focus on progressives who are already progressive but just need to be activated so you know it i i think that everyone has their own question of who they should reach out to but i would definitely consider people who you think would be receptive but maybe just aren't like quite there. Yeah. So basically what you're, what you're saying is reach out and, and recommend this book to somebody who would be receptive to it anyways, but maybe just not active yet. Maybe. I mean, I think that, that I think we at least consider that as an option and it might be the best option. Okay. Something, uh, you know, Kurt, you mentioned on the Catholic Church a little bit ago, and this is a perspective from the inside of the Catholic Church that uh, it's more it's more metaphorical or analogous to what we're talking about. But there's a priest called uh, named Father Father Robert Barron, and he talks about the new evangelization church is trying to build presence. And he said the problem with the church is that we've gone out to these people and said, "You need to be a part of our church," and they're like, "Okay, like what do you know about me?" And they're like, "Nothing. You should be a part of our church." <laughs> And so he talks about, I think it's something that, that really resonated with me, not, not just on that level, but just on an interpersonal level throughout the entirety of my life, is meeting people where they're at. And I think when you talk about passing this book off to uh, somebody who might, it, it's a little too dense for somebody who's not open to it. I think that's a really good point. But I think in terms of knowing what we have and how we translate that to other people, it's really easy to be angry at other people for the viewpoints that they have. But, um, you know, if you go and you listen to some people who, who lean more conservative, sometimes if you try to identify with the emotion that they have, like their emotion seems very identifiable, even though their points of view are like, no, that doesn't make any sense at all. I think that's something that we have to keep in mind when, when we're trying to communicate this information is find a balance of, not sugarcoating it because it shouldn't be sugarcoated, but also being able to meet the audience where they're at a little bit. And that's very challenging. Yeah. I, I, that's something I always kind of struggle with. And like when I first started getting onto social media, I really didn't post much because it's kind of like, well, you know, no one really cares like what I think or, you know, I don't want to put, put, my beliefs into somebody else because I feel like that that's been done to me and it's not felt great. I just thought of a really related story that I think is a perfect allegory to this. And we should all think about our own experiences of how we've learned things. Taylor, right after the 2008 election, I bought you the audacity of hope by Barack Obama. <laughs> like it was like a joke and you were much more conservative at the time. And you, I think you were like, ha, thanks. I appreciate it. You know, it's not you. You wouldn't look back on that book and say, 
wow, that's when I started to understand, you know, right? Yeah. Hey, but just just to add to this, when we were all in high school, we were all very blindly conservative. You know, I mean, it was just it's what we yeah. knew. And at some point in time, as a joke, I think I went on like a Hillary Clinton website or a Barack Obama website, probably when we were Kurt, you and I were juniors. Taylor would have been a senior. And I think I, I signed up to have some like, you know, campaign mail from one of those sent to your house, Kurt. So, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how that connects, but uh, oh my I God, forgot about that, Kurt. That's so funny. Yeah, I do remember being like, wow. Yeah, he was uh, really mad. I remember he showed it to me and he's like, look at this fucking shit that Kurt bought me. <laughs> <laughs> well dude no that was so yeah no kurt like politically like i do want to say i'm sorry for the way that we probably treated you right after then because like i went (laughs) to college and i was one of those guys who like scoffed kind of at like the social justice club or whatever i was i mean i was an idiot i hate myself (laughs) But like, uh, yeah, I remember like when we first talked about that election, because I I will admit I voted for John McCain and now I'm ashamed of it. But uh, I remember you voted for Obama and I was like, do I even know Kurt anymore? Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Like what? You know, and and it's I don't know. It's just crazy. It's like, (sighs) but don't I mean, don't gloss over that, though, because when we bring up books like these i mean and just to you know full disclosure i mean i identify with taylor in that regard you know do we even know kurt anymore i think we i think that was a question that was asked by me and you know again i feel very silly for that looking back but i also will say that was part of my growth um that's what we're up against though when we bring these new ideas to these people that don't share that viewpoint and i think that's something that's important to recognize Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a very very good and personal point there Kurt. <laughs> <laughs> it, well and i to, like i appreciate you bringing me into it too danny like i'm thinking of if i was talk, sitting down with this book and 17 year old kurt how would that conversation go answer is not well <laughs> like it'd be really hard to to wrap wrap his head around it because it's such a gradual process for changing your mind about uh, and it's so often not somebody saying, hey, I know this and learn this now. I can teach, you know, it's just so hard. People are so resistant to that. Uh, but that's funny. That was a great little side note. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, we're kind of getting a little bit down to the wire here. Um, we have about 10 minutes left before we need to wrap up. Or less. but Or less. Yeah, true. Um, but was there... Anything, I know this episode was a little bit scattered. I think partially that's my fault for just how I, if anybody has anything else that you think we missed that you, you want to talk about beforehand, um, final impressions, final things you want to take away, feel free to just chime in. I think for me, the fact that we, the second half of this has kind of been this dialogue about what do we do with this and where do we go with this is a really good uh, encapsulation of what a book like this can can change in people and i'm glad that that discussion was part of this episode and i don't want to separate that discussion from this book because this book caused it yeah and to piggyback on that i just i want to offer a huge thanks to roxanne dumbar ortiz in the book she talks a lot about the made like the indigenous rights movement that she came up with and all of the leaders in that that inspired her. So I guess my final thought is just being really grateful for those people for cre- telling these stories and, and putting them out into a world that needs to hear them. So just thanks to them. I, I'd, I'd love to like connect with her or other writers and, and read more books like this and ha- and get a, you know, continue to get a perspective, but I know without their work, like we wouldn't be reading these stories. So I, I just want to say, I, we all, we owe so much gratitude and like, we owe so much to indigenous people of this country and we've done so much bad to them. So for, for uh, someone to stand up and, and tell that story. And I really appreciate that. Yeah. I, uh, 
so I work at a library and every morning I walk around and check on a bunch of computers, make sure they're working. Um, and one of our displays this month was uh, books about Native, Native, Native American history. And there were so many that I was just like, oh man, I'd love to read that, you know? And so I think this book, really it's the first book I've read that is about Native American history. And I love reading about history because it's always enlightening. It changes my views about what the world is like today and how it got here. But I think going forward, I'm going to make an effort to continue to read about Native American history because especially living in the West, in Oregon, we're a newer state. And what happened out here, like probably our biggest atrocity that we've committed was against Native Americans. So we have direct access to the tribes of, of Oregon, you know, there's a lot we can learn. There's a lot of history here and it, it kind of hits home a little bit. And I want to just continue throughout my life to, to learn about that and learn about, like I've, I've made an effort to learn about different cultures, but this one's right at home. So, yeah. And what's more is where we're from, you know, a lot of the things we've read, we've sort of been able to almost separate ourselves from the bad things saying, well, what did I have to do with that? What did my family have to do with that? Blah, 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 blah. But all four of us come from a small town where it's pretty clear that our, well, maybe not all of us sitting here, but our direct ancestors were awarded land for migrating over here. They were awarded more land if they were married and had a family. And it's not like that was just empty land. And, and this is only a few generations ago. I have a book in my bathroom that has a list of names of, uh, of every family that migrated to Mount Angel and was given land to farm. And we all know the names in that, in that book. Because we grew up with those families, and we might be, we you know, we might not be personally responsible for any of of those sorts of things that happened. But the truth is, is that we're a product of that. You know, we wouldn't be around if it weren't for the confiscation of land from indigenous people. Yeah, to hit on that Mount Angel vibe, my grandfather's one of his prized possessions is this framed collection of arrowheads that he has found while farming in his field. And I always thought, especially before reading this book, like, man, if I could have one, if I could inherit arrow, it would be that. Cause I just think it has so much history. It's so amazing. And now I'm looking at that with a whole new eyes and thinking, that is actually, and maybe it would still be good to have, but that is like, what is wrong? Or, you know, that was what was taken. Like the land that my grandpa farmed so our family could go to college, you know, that land was taken from people who were there and using it. And I just, I have never, I don't think it's ever hit as close to home. So thanks for bringing that up, Brad. I just like thought about that when you said that. And I'm just like, oh my God. Well, and we tried to, we kind of mentioned you know how last uh, last episode how we grew up in a place that you know we didn't really experience these sorts of things and i think it's easy to forget that i mean mount angel has its problems and i had the same thing man my 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 own father has a mortar and pestle and arrowhead collection in his sock drawer that his father got when they were digging up shit up at the abbey there you know there that was a holy site and now it's another holy site for white people, but it was a holy site for indigenous people. Um, and when they were digging up stuff to build all these things, they found all sorts of artifacts. And now they're sitting in a sock drawer and probably not just one sock drawer, probably many. It's weird and screwed up. Not to, to get away from what you guys are talking about, about our local history, because we do come, come from a place that is rich with that history. We were taught it. That was actually, I, I am really happy that our history class was taught about local history because I learned a lot about 
how our city was founded. It's a small little town. It was, you know, founded from set- settlers and, you know, kind of the fact, like, I didn't know. So we, this, the town that we're from has an Abbey Hill. It's there. It's a hill that there's an Abbey at the top of it. And now it's like a Catholic monastery basically. And it used to be a sacred ground of the native Americans that lived in the area, but now it's gone. Now it's white people's land, you know? So that was, I'm really happy that we learned about that, even though now thinking more about it, it probably was very traumatic experience getting, you know, getting our town founded. Uh, I do have one thing I want to mention, but I'll let Danny go ahead and go first, because I think this was a good note to end on. That was one thing that uh, I I really struggled with towards the end of the book when I had to think about the impacts of colonialism and what that really meant. And for out of this group of guys, the one who's still fairly actively Catholic and for a place that means a lot to me because of, of that faith, that was something that was really challenging to think about that, you know, something that I, I rely on as, as a source of comfort and strength and what that came out of it. it it's just, it breaks down the foundations of these things that you hold dear to you. And it's very challenging to think about that, but it, it needs to happen. Well, so there's a, a quote at the end of the book that um, might be a little long and might not hit the exact way that I wanted to, but it's kind of, I mean, I think the the main purpose of this book is one, to demystify the American myth. Um, it's also to kind of wake us up to the fact that America needs to realize our, his, our real history, our true history of what we did to this land that we claim to be ours. Um, on page 229, this is a long one. This is about kind of us, us um, having that thought of, well, it wasn't, it, we didn't do this. Our ancestor, ancestors did this. So what do we do with it? She says, a race to innocence is what occurs when individuals assume that they are innocent of complicity and structures of domination and oppression. This concept captures the understandable assumption made by new immigrants or children of recent immigrants to any country. They cannot be responsible, they assume, for what occurred in their country's past. Neither are those who already uh, citizens. Oh, sorry. Neither are those who are already citizens guilty, even if they are descendants of slave owners, quote unquote, Indian killer, uh, Indian killers, or Andrew Jackson himself. Yet. In a settler society that has not come to terms with its past, whatever historical trauma was entailed in settling the land affects the assumptions and behaviors of living generations at any given time, including immigrants and the children of recent immigrants. So basically, we do have to deal with these issues. Just because we didn't directly do these horrific things, it is now our responsibility because we are here now, living now, and other people are continuing to suffer, not from our direct actions, but from the actions of our ancestors. So that's why we really need to care. That's why we need to learn about these things. And I think it's a calling to us. I think this conversation that we had today was a direct calling. It was It was one of the most impactful conversations I've had in a long time. And I think that all of us took this read as, as a call to action. So guys, thank you for reading this. I'm so happy with this pick. I'm so happy that we, I feel like we just got so much from it and uh, God, this is amazing. I'm really looking forward to what we have to come. Thank you all for listening um, does anybody have anything else they want to say? Nope. Only that, uh, next time you hear, um, well, next time we record an episode, I'm going to tell you all about my letter writing campaign. <laughs> <laughs> all right. There's your, there's your call to action, right? Yeah. Challenge. We, we talked about having challenges. I think, um, we may have to just talk off air to, to try and solidify some of that stuff, but, uh, thank you guys for your insight. Thanks everyone. Uh, everyone that's listening it's been an amazing journey and if you have anything you want to mention to us 
Make sure you tweet us, ABC. Uh, what is it? Sorry. Awesome. We are at awesome, <laughs> at book, awesome club. book club. Uh, email us, abc at airpodcast.com. We'd love to hear your guys' thoughts. If you guys have any recommendations for books, things we should know about, maybe there's something in the news that directly corresponds to what we've talked about today. We'd love to hear it. We'd love to expand our horizons even further. So, yeah. And hop on that Twitter account and wish Kurt a happy belated birthday. He is on his way out the door right as we speak to go and have a birthday beer with his buddies. So, uh, happy birthday. <laughs> happy man. birthday, you big lug. Yeah, happy birthday, Kurt. <laughs> I'm uh, just going to only talk about this book at the birthday party. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Bring it with you and hand it off. <laughs> oh, man. Awesome. Uh, all right, everybody. Thanks right. so much for tuning in. We will see you next time. Yep. Cheers, all. Cheers.